0: As the Tories threaten to ban rail strikes, Keir Starmer has sacked a frontbencher for turning up to a picket line. Is it now the unions versus the government and the opposition? That's our main story tonight. We'll also be discussing Starmer's bizarre response to the Ford report and living with Covid when you are disabled. I'm joined by Dalia Gabriel. Big news night today. How are you doing?
1: Yeah, not bad. I mean, a disappointing news night, especially with what's coming out from the Labour Party. But, but yeah, doing all right.
0: You can guess what's going to happen tonight, my audience. Lots of videos of Mick Lynch. We know you can't get enough of him. And obviously, it being a strike day, he's been all over all the networks. 40,000 rail workers have been on strike today in a continuing dispute with network rail and 14 train operators. The dispute is over pay conditions and redundancies, but it's become symbolic of a general battle against the cost of living crisis. Rail workers are not alone in being offered reduced conditions and below inflation pay offers, but they are some of the first to fight back. The workers on strike today are all represented by the RMT. And this morning, their assistant general secretary, Eddie Dempsey, spoke to Jeremy Vine about the current state of negotiations.
2: Now, the Network Rail chairman has just been saying that they've offered you 8% now over two years, as well as a 75% discount on travel, family members travelling at low cost, and a bonus, and no compulsory redundancy. That sounds like the sort of offer you're going to say
3: yes to. It's progress, but you have to appreciate this offer is conditional. Is conditional upon slashing maintenance schedules in half in maintenance, which we don't think is a a good prospect for a safety-critical industry, and the stripping out of thousands of jobs, Uh, and also the introduction of a lot more unsocial working. And people that work more nights and unsocial hours die earlier than they might otherwise would have done. So we're making progress with Network Rail, but I have to say that's the only company we've received any type of offer from. The other more than dozen train operating companies have offered us zero, nothing, except for job cuts. Uh, So we remain in dispute. Uh, We're going to continue in strike action until we get some improved offers. Uh, And we think it's fair and just for workers in this country, not just in the railway, to demand a pay rise because workers' wages and living standards have been falling in this country for 30 years. And at the same time, profits have been going through the roof and that has got to change. Can't carry on. So we may
2: have a situation where we, all of us as, as rail passengers, factor in that for two or three days a month, the rail
3: there isn't the railway service. It might, it might be an ongoing situation, right? You can do this forever. Well, we won't. We won't be doing this forever. We'll do this until we get a settlement, and we're making progress with Network Rail. At the moment, we're not making any progress with the train operating companies, and that's because they've got a mandate set by the Department for Transport uh, on the basis of stripping two billion out of the operational expenditure of the railway, which means. You can't deliver the railway as it is now. You have to reorganise it, cut jobs out of it. Uh, But at the same time, we're protecting the profits that are going through our industry, which are at a huge rate. And they're leaving this country, going to tax havens. And the money at the top of our industry is absolutely obscene.
0: That exchange gave us a good idea of the terms of the dispute. Network Rail have made an improved offer to workers, but none of the other 14 employers have moved at all. And the overall context remains that the government is demanding swinging cuts to maintenance at a time when we should be investing billions in having a world-class rail service, not cutting it to the bone. Of course, investment in environmentally friendly essential services is not the focus of the two candidates vying to be our next prime minister. This was Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak in Monday's leadership debate.
4: Two more strikes coming this week, two more train strikes. Will you ban strikes on essential public services like the railways?
5: Yes, yes, it's a manifesto commitment, yep. and we need to deliver it. We'll
4: do it. Very clear.
6: And
0: Liz Trust repeated that
6: threat the following day. Big strike on the railways tomorrow. If you were Prime Minister, what would you do about it?
4: I would legislate to make sure there are, there are essential services on our railway. It is completely wrong that the travelling public are being held ransom by militant unions. We can't allow that to happen. We need to make sure our essential services run. As I've said, I'm on the side of people who work hard who go into work, who want to run their businesses. We can't see them hampered by the activities of these militant unions. The
6: people who work hard as well, they work on the railways and for the train companies.
4: Well, those people are well rewarded for the work they do. And what is wrong is to try and hold the travelling public to ransom. I will take a tough line on trade union action that is not helping people get on in
6: life. Yeah, Mick Lynch, uh, the boss at the RMT, has said that uh, your attack on trade union and civil rights uh, is the biggest since labour unions were legalised in 1871. He says that you are robbing working people of a key democratic right and that if these proposals become law, there will be the biggest resistance mounted by the entire trade union movement, uh, rivalling the general strike of 1926.
4: Well, I don't take any notice of these bellicose threats. I'm on the side of the travelling public who need to get into work to do their jobs. We're facing a global economic crisis. It's completely irresponsible of the trade unions to call these strikes at the time as we're seeking to get the economy going. And I will legislate to make sure that those core services are provided to the public.
0: The idea that you can respond to worker discontent by simply banning strikes is, of course, incredibly sinister. And the RMT's Mick Lynch gave a strong response to those suggestions from Sunak and Truss. Well, I think she's a right-wing
7: fundamentalist,
0: actually. And I think
7: we're going to have one of the most extreme uh, leaders, if she succeeds, that we've ever had in the Prime Minister's office. This is a direct attack on one of the main pillars of our democracy. One one of the founding bases of any democracy is the right for a trade union to freely organise and take appropriate industrial action. She's seeking to make effective industrial action illegal, So people will have to use other means to take action and respond to the employers. Who's being held to ransom at the moment is the British worker right across the economy. We saw the problems with the NHS yesterday, up to 60,000 vacancies in important jobs because people are stressed out and underpaid and are not getting a square deal. What she wants is the trade unions to surrender so that we have a low paid, cowed workforce in this country, which makes profit rampant and supports the people that support her, the 160,000 Tories that are going to vote for her in some kind of Surrey golf club scenario, will be very pleased with this rhetoric. But the rest of the country, if you believe in democracy and believe in a, a liberal economy, cannot support what she's standing for because it's oppression of working people.
0: Other union leaders have also reacted strongly. Um, so Sharon Graham, who's the General Secretary of Unite, said the government has miscalculated People can see behind the usual narrative of union bad, boss good. This is not the 1970s. The cost of living crisis is the latest episode in a long-term war on the living standards of workers. The General Secretary of the TUC, Francis O'Grady, said this. The proposals are an attack on the fundamental right to strike. They are anti-democratic and anti-worker. Threatening the right to strike tilts the balance of power too far towards employers. It means workers can't stand up for decent services and safety at work or defend their jobs and pay. And the General Secretary of Unison, Christina McAnee, said this, The government wants to turn the clock back to Victorian times when children were sent up chimneys and working people ruthlessly exploited. Unions are trying to help employees through the worst cost-of-living crisis in recent history. Ministers want to demonise unions to distract from their own bailings. So I assume the government would love to make this just about the militant RMT and and, the government who they want to put themselves forward as, as responsible and in favour of, of commuters. Luckily, this is great. We're seeing real unity from, from the Labour movement. Everyone's saying, no, no, attack on one and there's attack on all. If you try and ban rail workers striking the whole union movement, all of working Britain is going to you know, stand up to you. We're not going to let you pick us off one by one. Dahlia, this contest between the government and the RMT is continuing to intensify. And as I say, between the government and, and the entire union movement of Britain What's your take on on the current state of play?
1: We are really at a a very critical juncture right now in the economy and in the general social dynamic in this country. And the Tory party, the capitalist class are incredibly aware of this. The amount of strain that working class people, everyday people have been put under under between public health crises, between cost of living crisis, between the climate crisis, all of which have been felt very severely, particularly this summer. You know, the working class have never been put under that kind of duress and not resisted those kinds of conditions. And this is also a working class that have been under 10 years of of very brutal austerity. So it's very clear that we are at breaking point because Essentially, capitalism has always made this bargain with working class people, with people in the global north by basically saying, you know, we will provide you with enough money so that you can have a basic standard of living and, you know, we'll build a welfare state that will catch you when you fall. And in exchange for that, you will give us, you know, your time and your labor, etc. And that is how capitalism has survived the 20th century, even though it's so obviously brutal to the rest of the world. That consensus is now really breaking down in countries like the UK, where it was previously pretty strong. People's wages are just not enough to cover basic living costs, and that welfare state is crumbling before our eyes. So we are at that juncture now, and the only way that it is going to be resolved. Is by political struggle, and we're seeing the beginnings of that right now with this wide scale, this this promise of wide scale, cross class, cross sector strikes, and frankly, the beginning of of civil unrest. And so, what Truss and Sunak are responding to there, and as you know, as Mick Lynch said, they are very much talking to their base. And when they're talking in this way, is they are basically sharpening their tools. For that incoming struggle, we are seeing the most classic anti-union narratives being peddled, attempts to criminalize the right to strike, which is a natural culmination of the fact that the state's carceral powers have expanded so dramatically, particularly over the past 10 years, uh, attempts to divide and rule the working class to hit consumers or what they call the traveling public, which is a bizarre invention of the English language. Against workers. These are very classic strategies. You know, this what we are going to see over the coming year, over the coming months and possibly years is essentially thatcherism uh, on steroids. And we're seeing the beginning of that. And I think that the RMT, as we've talked about before, are doing a really good job in essentially being the first kind of frontier or the first layer upon which these these strategies are being uh, deployed, and the sort of the first sectors that are kind of embarking on what is likely to be several years of labor unrest. You know, they are holding strong. Uh, they have a very powerfully organized movement. They have a strong track record of winning, and I think that that Mick Lynch in particular is doing a really good job of drawing this out from just a, one particular labor dispute into sort of larger, more systemic. Problems. You know, this is not just about what transport workers are being paid or transport worker schedules. This is about power in our society, about who has it, about the system, about who has the wealth and who suffers to make that wealth. And by drawing those connections between consumers who are paying way too much for for rail fares, the UK consumer is one of the highest when it comes to, to train transportation prices drawing the connection between those transportation workers who are not being paid enough, especially when you look at the bottom end of the the transportation worker pay scale, and also connecting those two things with the skyrocketing profits that we are seeing amongst transport company owners. That kind of framework that Lynch is drawing out is not only building solidarity and commonality between the constituencies that Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak are trying to divide between, But that is actually a narrative that can be very easily lifted from the transportation sector into other sectors like healthcare, et cetera. And so by by drawing those connections, I think the RMT is doing a really good job of making this about the broader class struggle, essentially, that we are going to be seeing over the coming months. But with all that being said, things are going to get very brutal. As more sectors of the economy go on strike, as I said, we're going to see Thatcherism on steroids. And let's not forget, you know, when Thatcher cracked down on the unions, which had an impact of several decades, you know, I think this is the strongest the labor movement has been since then. It was also during that phase of transition from one kind of capitalism to another and the crushing of the labour movement was how all of our lives were made worse. When you know you had this transition from the kind of post-war consensus to to neoliberal capitalism. So whoever it is, Sunak or Truss, will, with the help of the media, and as we will later see, the Labour Party, unfortunately, will be ramping up every Thatcherite strategy to the max in order to crush this this gen this movement that is spilling out across labour. Um, And we need to see some real strategizing across sectors, across unions, across types of worker, regardless of, you know, migration status or documentation or gender or race to really provide the kind of united and disciplined and organized front that can actually defeat what is yet to come. So this is the beginning of what I think is going to be a very long story of labour and civil unrest that will be coming over the next few years.
0: Yeah, I mean, I have to say, I mean, it's incredibly tough times for so many people. I mean, we we are not in a good situation right now. Cost of living crisis. People cannot afford their energy bills. I think basically no one's pay rises are increasing with inflation. Although, as we spoke about on Monday, only the top one percent it's only the top one percent of wage earners who are getting pay rises above inflation. No one else is. Really, really difficult times. But it is it's quite exciting actually to see how how widespread the resistance is how many amazing spokespeople there are to, to speak on its behalf, how united everyone seems. Obviously, the government will be trying to chip away at that. Workers across Britain have responded to a cost-of-living crisis by taking strike action. But Keir Starmer has found himself a spectator to the action. That's in large part because the Labour leader can't decide where he stands on the basics. Here he is,
5: asked about whether public sector workers should accept a real-terms pay cut. You said in your in your manifesto for your leadership a couple of years ago, that you were the kind of man who stands up for working people, tackles uh, insecure work and low pay. So on public sector pay, we now know that uh, the pay review bodies yeah. are talking about four five percent, well below inflation. So are you the kind of person who will say, no, public sector workers deserve more than that? I'll give you more than that.
2: Well, in these pay negotiations, obviously, there are different bodies around the table um, with well-established procedures for deciding how uh, to come to an agreement. I want that to play out. I think uh, the negotiations should get around the table. and But hopefully would you that give them what resolved. they want? Did you these give them the money they, they want, that big in- inflation
5: bed? matching well,
2: rise? Well, that, that's, that's a question for those around the table who are doing the negotiations.
0: It's like someone reading you an A-level textbook about industrial relations instead of someone taking a political position. You are leader of the opposition. If you have nothing to say about real-terms pay cuts, what are you doing in that job? Now, of course, that was specifically about public sector pay, but Starmer has had a similar approach to private sector workers, including, most notably, the RMT and everyone working on the railways. Starmer has responded to that dispute by banning Labour frontbenchers from visiting RMT picket lines. But in the latest round of that strike action, Shadow Transport Minister Sam Tarry defied his boss
6: by visiting an RMT picket line. Here he is on Good Morning Britain. If we don't make a stand today, people's lives could be lost. Some of the lowest paid workers are on strike today in the rail industry, safety critical workers. Workers that make sure our railways get people to work and do so safely. It can't be accepted anymore that people just have to accept that inflation is out of control the government's doing nothing on the cost of living crisis and i tell you what's shameful i believe strongly if we had a labor government right now this dispute wouldn't be happening because we would actually be around the table. And I tell you what, when Grant Shaps and Liz Truss come on the telly and say to you that it's someone else's fault, that it's the striking rail workers' fault that this dispute is happening, what a load of nonsense. The Trade Union Congress had a legal opinion just a few weeks ago that showed definitively that it is the government who are agitating for this dispute. And it needs to be resolved, it needs to be resolved fairly and justly and quickly for the sake of the travelling public. Can we just uh, play to you what Sakir Starmer, your party leader, said to us yesterday morning on this programme?
2: The Labour Party in opposition needs to be the Labour Party in power, uh, and a government doesn't go on picket lines, a government tries to resolve disputes. So the leader of the Labour Party says you shouldn't be on a picket line, and you are on a picket line, presumably has to sack
6: you by lunchtime. I've no idea what Keir will decide to do, but I know this that if Keir was in government right now, this dispute wouldn't be happening. We would be round the table making sure the RMT and TSA get a fair deal and making sure that happens as soon as possible. I have absolutely 100% confidence that any Labour Party MP will be in support of striking workers. People giving up a day's pay, a week's pay, or even longer. By the way, this isn't just rail workers. We've now got the BMA talking about going on strike. We've got the communication workers, postal workers, people in BT. Industrial disputes are happening right across this country because the cost of living crisis is totally out of control. After 10 years of austerity followed by people's wages in real terms not having risen in nearly a decade, any Labour leader will clearly be on the side of ordinary people, no matter what difficult decisions they have to take to make sure that they get the deal and the pay that they deserve. Sam Tarry has now been sacked for crossing Starmer. A Labour
0: spokesperson said this... This isn't about appearing on a picket line. Members of the front bench sign up to collective responsibility. That includes media appearances being approved and speaking to agreed front bench positions. As a government in waiting, any breach of collective responsibility is taken extremely seriously. And for these reasons, Sam Tarry has been removed from the front bench. So Keir Starmer has decided to make his dividing line in the Labour Party I'm the guy opposed to striking workers when we're in the middle of a cost-of-living crisis. You can be with me or you can be with the guy who wants Britain to get a pay rise. Who are people going to choose? In any case, soon afterwards, Sam Tarry gave an interview to LBC's Ben Kentish. Um, He tweeted this, quote, Across the Labour Party, we're going to see an awful lot of anger about what's gone on today. It was avoidable. It was unnecessary. And he says that Tarry claims Starmer has a, quote, far worse relationship with trade unions than even tony blair did and says today's events quote wouldn't have happened under tony blair one of lbc's correspondents added this so sam tarry who was just sacked from the shadow cabinet tells ben kentish he is quote a labor party loyalist but when asked if starmer is doing a good job he just says quote i think he is doing the best job that he can so it's faint praise um, if i've ever heard any um, this was Unite General Secretary Sharon Graham's response to the news. The UK Labour sacking of Sam Tarry for supporting working people on strike against cuts to their jobs and pay is another insult to the trade union movement. Quite frankly, it would be laughable if it were not so serious. Unite, of course, the largest private sector union in the country. I mean, historically has been Labour's biggest donor. That's in, in recent years, at least. Dahlia, in the middle of a cost-of-living crisis, Starmer has made these strikes a dividing line within his party. Is this smart politics?
1: Of course it isn't, from one angle. When you look at the data, you know, the most recent survey data, you see that the strikes are actually quite popular amongst people and particularly uh, popular amongst the people that Keir Starmer says that he wants to reach out and to represent, you know, particularly in the north of England, in the Red Wall. This is where the strikes are the most popular because these are parts of the country that have a very strong memory of what happens to your community when union, when the labor movement is is shattered into pieces. Uh, And it's very interesting to me that when it comes to, you know, reactionary topics like being anti-immigration or being pro-NATO, Keir Starmer will essentially use the red wall or his imagination of who the red wall is as a human shield against criticism and will sort of blame them for his own moral cowardice and lack of political imagination. But when it comes to supporting the strikes, he's not taking the lead from the people that he claims to want to win back. It's also very popular. The strikes are also popular amongst Labour voters, Uh, again, you know, should be a key part of Keir Starmer's constituency. So I don't understand how it can be politically savvy to go against what is clearly popular amongst the base that you are trying to build in order to win an election. If you look at this from the perspective of a leader that is wanting to build grassroots power, is wanting to build a broad based coalition of you know all of the stakeholders that could potentially come together and not only put labor in power but actually keep a labor party in power uh, a radical labor party in power what he what his pathway to power actually looks like is essentially the blairite model of getting into power which is to essentially signal to the press owning you know class the the super rich, the wealthy, uh, and essentially signal that, you know, I am a safe pair of hands with your class interests and befriending and becoming cozy, essentially, with the media, with the Murdoch press and sort of that kind of class. That is the Blairite model of power. And to be fair, in a sense, it worked. You know, it did put Blair in power, But at what cost, you know, Blairism laid the foundations for so much of the brutality that we are seeing today. And Blairism was a pale imitation of what a Labour Party should be doing because they didn't empower Labour. They didn't empower the working class. And so what we are seeing in Keir Starmer being so ruthless with Sam Tarry in this way it is clear now what he views as his pathway to power, which is not through building trust and building the political imagination of working-class people and offering a genuine alternative to the system in which we live, but actually towards befriending who he sees as the the actual people who can put him in power, which is essentially the media class, and he's signalling to them he is a safe pair of hands for their class interests. But what I find so outrageous about this is, first of all, any time a Tory or a Labour Party politician criticize workers for going on strike. The thing that I think of is you are such hypocrites. Even even the Tory party are hypocrites because what did the Tories do, the Tory front bench do, when they were not satisfied with their leader, with Boris Johnson? They withdrew their Labour. What did the Labour shadow front bench do when they, many of whom are now in the shadow front bench Under Keir Starmer, what did many of those people do when they were unhappy with the fact that Jeremy Corbyn was the leader of the Labor Party? They withdrew their labor. So clearly, they understand that workers and people should have a right to strike and that striking gets the goods. And that's precisely why they are trying to either through criminalizing the right to strike or by politically stigmatizing workers going on strike to deprive working class people of the tool that they know actually gets. Uh, the goods and so, with all that being said, I essentially think it's now time for the Labour Party to have a rebrand because this is not the party of labour. When you look at Liz Truss, you know the Conservative Party represents the interests of capital against the interests of labour. When you look at Liz Truss, she was not neutral. She wasn't saying, "Oh, I'm going to let those around the table, around the negotiating table, to decide." She firmly stood up for her class interests and she said not only am i in support of capital of capitalists crushing labor but i'm actually going to step in and intervene with all of the might of the state to criminalize striking and actually help you crush labor meanwhile the person who's supposed to be representing labor is either offering pathetic neutrality or you know a kind of passive position or is actually punishing those who express solidarity with the strikers. And so at this point, we don't have a political party in this country that represent Labour. Being the the leader of something called the Labour Party is is not given. It's earned. And I think Keir Starmer has proved himself to not be a responsible bearer of that very important title.
0: What's well, so what about it really is there are issues where the Labour Party, I can understand why for electoral reason it sort of stands back and say, look, we're not really going to get involved in this one. So Brexit was one. Obviously, a migration in the 2015 general election. Like, you might not agree with it, but it, you can see the logic behind it. Whereas what Keir Starmer has decided to do here, the Tory government have said everyone in Britain should get a pay cut. And Labour have decided, oh, this isn't a winning issue for us. Oh, this is pretty dangerous for us. We're going to try and stay out of this one. Really? Like the Tories say everyone in Britain has to accept a real terms pay cut. And Labour be like, oh, oh please don't ask me about that. He was asked, should everyone in the public sector accept a real-terms pay cut? Like, oh, goddamn, they've asked me that question. I'm going to give my lines from the A-level textbook about how industrial disputes are resolved. It just seemed so bizarre to me. Like, everyone in Britain is going to get a pay cut, apart from the top 1%, as I said on Monday's show. This should be the issue on which you win the election. Like, if you're going to sidestep this issue, the whole country getting a pay cut, what are you hoping to win the next election on? Can you ask me about parties over lockdown again? Like, no, we've moved on. We're asking you about pay rises, and we want you to tell us whether or not everyone should get a pay cut or not. It's like, oh, can we talk about integrity? Can we talk about how I was director of public prosecutions? We've moved on, Keir Starmer! And also we've moved on to a topic which should be good ground for the Labour Party to suddenly seem relevant. No, I don't think everyone should get a pay cut. It's not that difficult. Come on. Wow. I'm actually more angry about that than the strikes. I can see why a Labour, you know, why Keir Starmer might not want to turn, turn up to a picket line. He wants to look prime ministerial. I can see why he might, you know, I, I would like him to go to the strikes. But I'm, I'm more angry about the fact that he has nothing to say about the whole country getting a pay cut. That, that to me just seems, you know... I see no justification for it at all, other than, you know, as you were suggesting, Dahlia, if this is all about appealing to to Rupert Murdoch and saying, you can trust me because I'm willing to make everyone in Britain poorer if it protects profits, which is essentially the message which is being very effectively, I must say, communicated. Let's go straight to our next story. The Ford report confirmed that Labour has a problem with anti-black racism and Islamophobia. It also confirmed that right-wing staff had tried to undermine Jeremy Corbyn and that much of the media coverage of the anti-Semitism row had been wholly misleading. Yet despite this, or perhaps because of this, the media have largely ignored the report's release. And as far as I'm aware, this clip shows the only time Keir Starmer has been asked about the report's findings.
4: The Ford report, um, such as as we've seen it, does paint a pretty dysfunctional picture of the Labour Party behind the scenes. What action is going to, to follow from it?
2: What the Ford report shows is how dysfunctional the Labour Party was under Jeremy Corbyn because it was a report on what the situation was um two years ago. Um, I didn't need the report to tell me we needed to take action. I've been taking action in those intervening two years. Obviously, we'll reflect on everything in the report um, and where we need to make further changes, we will. But I didn't need the report to tell me that I needed to change the Labour Party, and we've been hard doing that, making progress, but you can never say the job is done on anti-Semitism, being very clear that we unshakably support NATO, being very clear that we are pro-business, we work with business, um, and being very clear that as a party, we've got to stop talking to ourselves, uh, and we've got to turn inside out and talk to our voters wherever they are.
0: What action is going to follow from this report that exposes a racist culture and shows subversion by unelected staff? We're going to be pro-business and reaffirm our unshakable commitment to NATO. Talk about non-sequitism. One of those things has nothing whatsoever to do with the other thing. Dahlia, I mean, that's almost like a parody of Keir Starmer, isn't it? What are you going to do about racism in your party? We will reaffirm our commitment to NATO. How are those two things connected?
1: Well, I think it shows that he is rightly very confident that the media are not going to challenge him on the systemic anti-black racism and Islamophobia that pervades the Labour Party from top to bottom. You know, both when we are looking at Interpersonal racism and, you know, the kind of racism that, I mean, just look at the treatment of Apsana Begum and like the kind of personal experiences of Black and Muslim people in this party. But also when you look at policy, that the systemic policies uh, of the Labour Party have historically been invested in Islamophobia and anti Black racism. Prevent, which is one of the most Islamophobic pieces of domestic legislation that we have. The groundwork for that was laid during the Labour Party government, the government that took us to war with Iraq, which was undergirded and justified using Islamophobic narratives. And so he is fairly confident that he's not going to be seriously challenged on those things in the media because the media is very much invested and embedded in those principles as well. And I think it's, it really goes to show that this kind of the disregard with which Keir Starmer and the Labour Party leadership in general, the disregard with which they hold constituencies of people that have repeatedly put the Labour Party in power, supported the Labour Party, given their vote, given their activism, given their organising and the contempt with which they are being treated by the leadership is frankly shocking. And I don't understand how it's not going to result in a backlash at the next election. But clearly, they believe that they can take the, the, the votes of those constituencies for granted to the extent that they can literally, you know, Keir Starmer couldn't even name the words Islamophobia and anti-Black racism in, in that answer, even though that was the central point, one of the central points that would be, and one of the most alarming points that were being made in the Ford report Honestly, it's just, to me, the fact that he couldn't even say those words uh, and the fact that he felt so confident that he wouldn't be challenged on those things, even though they were central findings of the report, just goes to show how disempowered and poorly treated uh, these communities are not only by the media, which fails to represent them. And when it does represent them, it's often in ways that are stigmatizing and harmful, but also within the party that these constituencies have given their vote and their work and their organizing work to for decades. The question is how long can they rely on the idea that Black and Brown people in this country? that the alternative is so much worse for them, you know, that the Tory party is so much worse for them. I don't know how long them being able to rely on that, um, is going to last before they're going to actually have to start treating these constituencies as people whose vote and support they have to earn, rather than they can just simply rely on the fact that the alternative is so much worse.
0: So as you suggested at the start of your answer, probably the reason Keir Starmer is able to get away with that is because the only people who have taken the report less seriously than him is the mainstream media. And sociologist Tom Mills, socialist as well, I think, has done some research showing just how out of character that is. He's researched the number of reports in the UK national press in the week following the publication of the Ford report and the broadcast of BBC panoramas is Labour anti-Semitic. In the week after that panorama documentary, the Times and the Sunday Times did 67 articles on Labour and anti-Semitism. The Ford Report, which, you know, as we've talked about on previous shows, said that Panorama documentary was wholly misleading, suggested that that Panorama documentary, among other media reports, was wholly misleading. They've written two about it. The Daily Telegraph, it's 19 after the Panorama documentary, one after the Ford report. For the Mirror, supposedly left wing, 24 after the Panorama documentary, one after the Ford report. The Mail, 18 and two. Even The Guardian, 27 after the Panorama documentary, and nine after the Ford report. So you can see here, newspapers who were very, very, very interested in issues of internal party politics, complaints, procedures, racism within a party. This was big front page news when it was something which could damage Jeremy Corbyn. When you've got a report which shows issues which wouldn't damage Jeremy Corbyn, potentially would damage the centrist leadership of the Labour Party, or, you know, which you just can't weaponise at all, They're just completely bored of it, completely uninterested. And it's especially notable given that one thing the Ford Report state in pretty clear terms is that a lot of the reporting, for example, the reporting after that Panorama documentary was wholly misleading. Now, a QC has put together a report about that, sort of laid the facts on the table. Silence, not interested. It just tells us so many things about politics in this country, which is the extent, I think, to which these rows completely manipulated and dictated and governed by the interests of the media. You've got racism in the party, which can become the biggest issue of the day. And as I say, we've always said there was some real anti-Semitism in the Labour Party and it was not dealt with perfectly, right? I think that's a legitimate news story, but it became the biggest story in the country. We've got the Ford report, which also shows some racism in the party, which was not dealt with very effectively Oh, suddenly that's not an interest, that's just internal party stuff. Internal party stuff was all you talked about for four years. Come on. And obviously that Keir Starmer answer, (sighs) you you say that to a BBC journalist, oh no, we're pro-NATO, don't worry about the report. They'll be like, oh yeah, legitimate response, Keir Starmer, forensic. We finally have some good news when it comes to COVID-19. According to the Zoe Symptom Tracker app, cases have started to decline, meaning we are past the peak of the Omicron BA 5 wave. However. Any celebration should be tempered by a couple of facts. Cases are still estimated to be very high, with around 4 million people estimated to have the virus. And from the frequency of these spikes, there is every chance we'll face another one soon. Now, the government stance seems to be that we shouldn't really worry about these spikes too much. The vaccine has taken the sting out of COVID-19, so we can treat it like the flu or even a common cold. But while that might seem workable to some people in society, There are others whom it excludes, namely those with clinical vulnerabilities to COVID-19. Earlier, I spoke to someone who falls into that group, Jamie Hale. Jamie is CEO of a disability rights charity and a multidisciplinary creative. He has a muscle weakening condition which decreases his respiratory function and relies on a ventilator part of the time. His medication also makes him more susceptible to catching COVID. I began by asking Jamie how the frequent and high COVID spikes were affecting his life.
8: I think when the caseload is low, I begin to go back out into the world and do things. And that's both in my personal life, but also in my work life, where as a performer, it is often impossible to give the same performance or be booked for a performance if you could say, well, I can only attend in person if the caseload is low. So This means that my career is essentially ricocheting between being in action and being on hold, that I'm missing out on opportunities both to spend time with friends and enjoy their lives and in my work life. On top of that, it makes it really difficult for me and for people like me to plan even weeks or months into the future because we don't know whether the caseload is going to be low enough that we might feel safe out and about. Or high enough that we have to return to a far more restricted way of living.
0: The government line for, for all of this appears to be, you know, for most people, COVID is is no risk for hospitalization because we've got vaccinations. And for people who have particular vulnerabilities, we've sent them antivirals. Now, I wanted to ask you about that sort of that line from the government. Have you been sent antivirals? How reassuring is that for you?
8: I haven't personally, and a number of the people I work with haven't either. So in my role at the charity, I'm quite often fielding a Friday night email from someone who may already be on 24-7 home ventilation with a machine doing all of their breathing, who has tested positive for COVID and who can't get hold of anyone to get hold of antivirals because their name hasn't been put on the right list at the right time. The idea that antivirals are just there and available for the people that really need them isn't true and is, of course, compounded by the fact that no treatment is one hundred percent effective
0: from everything you've said, i mean it's, it's pretty clear why you would be very, very unsatisfied with with the government response so far. I mean, how would you characterise their response over the past i suppose year in, in particular and what would you want them to be doing differently?
8: Honestly, I would call their response quite predictable in line with the wider politics that they espouse. I didn't anticipate that they would particularly prioritise the needs of disabled people at a time like this. And that has been shown to be the case. The policies that have been put in place are there to service the economy rather than to service society. And there are many that have felt very much like they are about showmanship rather than about rational decision making. There is no reason not to require that anyone non exempt wear a mask on public transport. There are so many interventions which have so little practical cost to the vast majority of people, but yet make such a difference to other people. Were masks mandatory on public transport, I would be far more able to get public transport, and yet it wouldn't require a significant behaviour change from people to wear them. So I think it's not just that the policies have been there to serve the economy and to serve this perceived non-disabled majority, but that these have been put in place, even when there is nothing rational behind them, simply because it looks better.
0: It seems like there are so many issues that need to be raised right now. I mean, what avenues are you finding? Is there any way for disabled people to have a voice at this, at this time to feed into what COVID policy is? And I mean, especially, you know, I can imagine that SAGE might have been the kind of organization that might have put forward um, the arguments you're making now. Does it feel like there is anyone sort of representing your interests in, in the
8: government sphere? It doesn't, know. I'm sure that there are many people, particularly within health policy sectors, making these arguments. I see them made. I see them backed up by evidence. But ultimately, the decisions that are being made are not being made on a basis of health policy. They're being made on a basis of what will garner the most votes from the people most likely to vote a certain way. And that is how our political system works. And thus, while it is awful, it is also no surprise.
0: What about other countries? Do you have an impression, is anyone else doing this better? Are you in contact with disabled people in other countries where it seems like their government is being
8: more responsible in in their approach to COVID? In significant parts of Europe, there has been far more insistence on maintaining some degree of mask wearing. And of course, mask wearing is a very simple and very effective intervention. Indeed, perhaps one we should be adopting in the cold and flu seasons as well as just for COVID. But it doesn't seem as if there is anywhere that has really focused on creating outcomes that work for disabled people in the population as well. And what do
0: you think this, this, this pandemic, and I suppose especially how it's being treated now, what, what has that said about disabled people's place in society, how, how they're treated, how their needs are, are respected or ignored?
8: For the first three months of the pandemic, it was very much, don't go outside, you might die. So I spent three months without going outside. and. Now it seems to be life proceeds as normal. I went in for a minor operation and there was no COVID testing in advance. There was nothing to do anything to protect people who were going into a hospital, where, of course, we know that COVID has spread like wildfire. The policy of discharging people from NHS beds into care homes, seeding care homes with COVID again, the death toll from that is unimaginable. The lack of care that is being paid to the fact that long COVID is an incredibly disabling condition that we still don't fully understand. And yet, a policy of letting COVID run through the population is happening. And now, it seems to be, from a government level, life is getting back to normal. But also, from a social level, less and less is being made available outdoors, despite the weather, or online, or in a hybrid format. So many places that briefly opened up the way they worked, whether it was arts venues, conferences, etc., to really allow people to participate from home, gave so many possibilities to disabled people. And now everything is returning to business as usual. And it's really clear that despite all of the knowledge we have about how to offer this new route of access, people broadly have no interest in doing so. And I think that says something about how disabled people are valued in the population.
0: Transport Secretary Grant Shapps has appeared on Sky News. He was asked about his failure to reach a negotiated settlement
5: with Britain's rail workers.
4: Why have these negotiations failed? Essentially,
5: the the unions uh, do not want to uh, modernise the work practices so we can run a modern railway uh, for passengers. Uh, Essentially, they've been taking the passengers for a ride with some of these antiquated um, methods that are in place, for example, not being able to send out a single van having to send two vans to maintenance and not running a 7-day service for example we we have to literally on some railway lines um appeal to uh, the better nature of, of of staff to even run a, a railway service on a Sunday uh, and that can't be right in the 21st century when leisure travel actually is the bigger part or becoming the bigger part of the transport network. So we have to have this modernisation. It's there to be sorted out and and, and therefore a pay rise can be had as well. But I'm afraid the unions have been incredibly militant about this and that's where we are are today.
4: And the unions are saying that um, they haven't spoken to a minister for months. When was the last time you spoke to them? They
5: they don't need to speak to ministers to resolve this because their employers are the people who have the uh, mandate to negotiate this. They're the people who... Uh, they can resolve this with. So this is just, I'm afraid, them uh, trying to distract attention. And if I put this into perspective, since I've been Transport Secretary, they've issued about 160 different disputes. There hasn't been a single day where there hasn't been either strike action or a mandate for strike action uh, ongoing. That's just not normal in any industry. And that's why we need to, I'm afraid, do more uh, to remove the power of these very militant, extreme-left unions from disrupting everyday lives to ordinary people.
0: That was Grant Shapps blaming the strikes on the unions who he thinks are overly militant and opposed to any modernisation. The RMT's Mick Lynch was up next on Sky. Let's see his response.
7: He's responsible for this dispute in the sense that he has a veto on what the train operating companies can offer us. It's written into their contracts that he's directly responsible for industrial relations and he can dictate what the terms are. And the fact is they've made no offer on pay towards our members. What they've offered us is mass redundancies, uh, recontracting our members on inferior terms and conditions, massive changes to their work-life balance and cuts in network rail to the, to the safety regime of up to 50% of the inspection. So he's caused this problem, and he's got to facilitate a way out of it. And he could do that today. And if he wants to, to facilitate a negotiated settlement, I'm very happy to deal with him. But what he won't do is contact me or any of my officers or any of the uh, people responsible for this negotiation and, and create a way forward.
4: And the reason he won't is because he says that you're militant, that you're extreme left. And he went on to say that you're not normal because there have been 160 different uh, disputes and there is some sort of dispute or um, balloting for a dispute every single day.
7: Well, it's ironic to be called not normal by the Conservative Party who are uh, taking themselves into the realms of the extreme right at the moment, as we've seen Uh, in this contest. They're, They're saying that paying tax isn't normal and having free trade unions with the ability to take industrial action isn't normal. The people behind me are ordinary men and women in this country. They work hard to deliver the railway service and what they don't want to do is see their wages diluted, their terms and conditions diluted and their contracts of employment ripped up. So I'm not a militant. I'm not even a member of a political party and I haven't been for 30 years. So the idea that we're running some ideological campaign is nonsense, frankly. What we want to do is get a settlement so a straightforward industrial dispute on jobs, pay and conditions.
8: Is it right
4: that he says that two vans have to go to every job as opposed to even one van being needed, but you double up on everything?
7: No, that's a lot of nonsense. He doesn't okay. know what he's talking about. We are okay. talking to Network Rail about the deployment of staff Every okay. day of the week. Okay. There's never been an occasion where a member's has refused to get in a van with, with other people. It's rubbish.
0: Mick Lynch also contextualised Schapp's claims about the frequency of disputes by saying the RMT deal with over 500 employers and that disputes moving to strike action is actually incredibly rare, obviously incredibly disingenuous from Grant Schaap. In a separate and later interview, Lynch was asked about the disruption that strikes inevitably cause, and this time he was even more robust.
7: We don't want to disrupt people, but they have an effect on the companies. They're not getting their income, and they're being indemnified by the government to conduct this dispute. The government is giving these companies £20 million a day to to run this dispute on their behalf. So it has an effect. We don't want to have the effect and the disruption on the public. We want a settlement and an agreement that our members can support.
4: And is going on strike the only way to achieve this, or is there another form of action you're
7: take? I could do trial by combat or something, if you like, but I can't think of a way at the moment because we've been negotiating for two years. Uh, But it would be interesting if me and Grant Shapps went head-to-head. We could see how we got on with that, if that's not too flippant. (laughs) If you've got any other ideas about how I can pursue it, I'll I'll happily take them up.
0: Dahlia, would you like to see mick lynch in a trial by combat head-to-head with grant shaps and who would win
1: if they're going to ban the right to strike then i don't know what anyway let me not speak too much but (laughs) but, you know this is like the most classic old-fashioned boring form of union bashing basically you blame workers you push society to its limits you you make you create a completely unsustainable system And then when society reaches that breaking point, which often manifests in the form of mass strikes, you then turn around and blame the workers for the disruption that everyone is feeling, which is not a consequence. It's not like workers going on strike is a symptom, not a cause of that crisis. It's essentially like pushing someone off a cliff and then getting mad at them for wasting ambulance resources when they actually try to resolve the situation. Um, And again, This is the the classic uh, Thatcherite model. I thought, you know, when when Grant Chaps was saying, oh, the, the, the unions just don't want to modernize. This was exactly what we heard from Thatcher. And for her, modernization was a way of making the financialization of the economy seem like an inevitability. And um, what she was basically saying was that this transition from one stage of capitalism to financial capitalism was inevitable and the unions were just refusing to modernize. And what I think Grant Shapps is gesturing to towards there when he says, you know, the the unions are refusing to modernize is to essentially move to this kind of uberization of the economy, which, as we know from the Uber files, Grant Shapps was very happy to be actively lobbied and to actively lobby on behalf of uber despite the fact that we knew that they were uh, breaking the law on employment classification on worker classification and the fact that we knew that they were flouting local regulations and what i mean by that uberization of the economy is trying to create a kind of employment model where companies and employers essentially take no responsibility for health and safety take no responsibility for the standard post-war social contract employment norms like pensions, like sick pay, like, you know, paid holiday leave, treating the workers like they are disposable, like they're on demand. Like it doesn't matter how you treat this worker when, when they burn out, we're just going to move on to the next one. We're just going to fire and rehire and essentially making the workforce incredibly insecure and incredibly precarious. And that is the model that someone like Grant Shapps means when he talks about modernizing the economy. And that is precisely the thing that the RMT is, is trying to, to resist. And so that exact playing out of, you know, trying to transition to an even more exploitative and unstable form of capitalism under the guise of modernization and blaming workers who are rightfully resisting the degradation of their rights. It's the same Thatcherite model just being rolled out in the 21st century. And of course, as was true during Thatcher's time, none of this is inevitable. There is no inevitable stage of development that we all have to move towards. The way that we go over the next 5, 10, 15 years is a political choice. And the choice that the Tories are trying to force us to make is an unsustainable and catastrophic one. And the choice that Mick Lynch and you know the rest of the true labour movement are trying to push us to make is one that is environmentally sustainable and that actually enables workers to be paid adequately for their time and to also have other forms of social welfare to to catch them when they get old when they get sick uh, if they have dependents etc. And so really the question is between those two different kinds of of working model. I know which one I'm on the side of, but I think that we should really see this as Grant Shapps deploying the exact same tactics that Thatcher deployed. And we should learn from those struggles to figure out how we are going to ensure that, unlike in the 1970s, Shapps and his like don't win this time around.
0: I really like that analogy, like pushing someone off a cliff and then blaming them for wasting ambulance time. Dahlia, thank you so much for joining me this evening.
1: Thanks for having me, Michael.
0: And we will be back on Friday at 7 p.m. Make sure you tune into that. We'll be reacting live to Rishi Sunak being interviewed by Andrew Neil. He's going to have to come up with something good because he's looking like he's going to lose quite badly at the moment. For now, solidarity with the RMT. You've been watching Tiski Sauer on Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to Navarramedia.com/slash
3: support